0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.
1: What they've been telling us for 70 years, they're finally beginning to understand they were so wrong because in the most technologically advanced societies on planet Earth, there is a growing deep hunger for a transcendent experience to experience, to feel, and to know God Today.
0: Today, today with Jeff Vines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to the program. The message is about the beginnings of the early church. And Pastor Jeff starts by illustrating how God is in constant pursuit of us, his creation, through his word. A bit later, Pastor Jeff will look at the coming of the Holy Spirit found in Acts chapter 2, but for now. Let's join Pastor Jeff for this message.
1: Welcome. So glad you're here. And uh, right now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. And uh, as you're doing that, I want to tell you a story that I've told you before, but there's a lot of new people who haven't heard it, but I will tell the condensed version. Uh, Because there are certain things that happen to us in our lives that just kind of change the way we think. they are dramatic, defining moments that change us forever. And so when I was in Bible college, uh, a friend of mine, my roommate actually, and I, uh, we were kind of rebellious. I know that surprises you. But uh, we had this kind of rule at our college that we could only attend churches who were affiliated with our association on the weekend. Well, you know, anytime you tell a young person there's something they can't do, that's not a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing, but they're going to rebel. It's just part of life, I guess. So we, we really got tired of attending these churches because they were so, in our mind, not, I'm not sure if it's true, but they were so doggone boring. And uh, we decided we were going to venture out, be little rebels, and visit another church. <laughs> and uh, we started going to this place called Mount Carmel Baptist, and they had this little pastor who was so fiery he was about five feet, two inches tall, and he was, his name was Pastor Leroy Brown, believe it or not. He was the uh, pastor of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we loved going to this church, and when my roommate and I came in, we were the only white boys in the place. I'm serious. We were the only white people there, and they welcomed us with open arms, man, put us right on the second row, treated us special. Couldn't sit on the front row now, Front row, that's for the elders and the musicians who, if they felt led by the Spirit, would walk up on stage and just start singing. So, so don't do that, by the way, during my message. <laughs> they put us on the second row, and uh, Pastor Leroy was fantastic. I'd never seen a pastor preach like this before, and you could tell when he got on stage, just, there was something different about him, and I would grow to learn later it was, a, it was an anointing of God that he had on him. He had a way of saying things, but I remember this one occasion. He He's trying to talk to us about the depth of the Word of God and how impactful it can be in your life, and he kept using the statement, and about 10 minutes into the sermon, he looked at the crowd, and he said, you know, I, I just want to tell you, you don't want to be the, the capitilla. And uh, I looked at my roommate, and he looked at me, and we said, what on earth is a, 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 a capitilla? What is that? So... 10 minutes into the sermon, 20 minutes into the sermon, he says, I done told you once, I'm going to tell you again. You don't want to be a capitilla. Of course, I looked at my roommate and again, we're thinking, well, what is a, a capitilla? And of course, we got shushed because you don't talk during the sermon at that church. You shh. And uh, most of you would be kicked out of here, right? <laughs> <laughs> Third time into the sermon, he says, I done told you once, I done told you twice. Of course, he's dancing a little bit now. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you a third time, you don't want to be the caterpillar. you want to be the butterfly. And uh, <laughs> immediately, I, we knew what he was talking about, trying to say uh, caterpillar. And it happens to all pastors. All pastors do this. Sometimes we just preach so much, we get a little confused because he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And this was a brilliant illustration. And I remember looking at my roommate and saying, oh, caterpillar. We started laughing. Of course, we got shushed again. But I remember that not only because how good the illustration was, but I came alive that day. Pastor Leroy spoke some real truths into my life, and I came alive and I realized, well, I, I walked out of there thinking, man, my eyes were open. It's, it's like somebody put a, a paradigm bomb in my brain and it exploded. And suddenly I saw, God does speak to us through his word every day. He pursues us. And this is what happens in your Christian life. Something has to happen to you along the way. You learn this associated truth and suddenly something happens and goes way down deep inside you and you're never, ever again the same. It's like an awakening happens inside you and changes everything. Now, folks, I want you to follow me down this rabbit trail just for a moment It's going to be hard for some of you, but just stay with me. Some of you are going to jump the gun, stay with me, because I have always enjoyed studying the history of thought. That is, you know, you and I think a certain way because we are the evolution of thought. We think in our generation a certain way because we've been programmed to think a certain way. And generation before that and generation before that, we move from existentialism to rationalism. Back to existentialism, it goes on and on. So, the history of thought's always been interesting to me, and it should be to any communicator. The West told us for decades that education and technology will el- eliminate the need for religion. They've been saying this for 70 years that we would become so advanced in our knowledge of natural forces that we would do away with the transcendent or the supernatural. We wouldn't need the supernatural, the transcendent anymore, because we'd have all of our answers, answers in the natural world. Ah, oh, now we have the sciences, we're going to be told. We now have something better. We, we've come of age. We don't need that hokey pokey, supernatural, mystical stuff anymore. So we can just shed religion away. We're enlightened people. Actually, in about 70 years ago, in places like North America and Europe, most of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, places like this, churches actually started changing. Seminaries started changing because they started teaching their young preachers that if we're going to be relevant to the next generation, then we're going to have to take all the miracles and the supernatural things out of the Bible. Read the Bible of the resurrection and the virgin birth and miraculous nature of Christ. And if we do that, we'll make religion more palatable to the next generation and they will be more apt to hear it. Now, if if you know anything about the Bible, you know, that would be like me telling you the history of the Lakers without mentioning Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jerry West they're inextricably tied together. And of course, a guy by the name of Dr. Lloyd Gearing started the No God movement down in New Zealand, started seminaries down there where they would actually train pastors to go into the churches and strip everything supernatural, miraculous, transcendent away from Christianity. Now, you know what's going to happen, right? When you do that, what happens? The church becomes incredibly irrelevant, incredibly irrelevant. You have the opposite effect. Nobody wants to come because what's the difference between this and my social club? Because the it's important because the deepest desire of the human heart is to experience the living God. What they've been telling us for seventy years—they're finally beginning to understand they were so wrong, because in the most technologically advanced societies on planet Earth, there is a growing deep hunger. For a transcendent experience to experience, to feel, and to know God. Now, here's the crucial question, and I've been asking it for years. If it's true, if the reality is that in this world, in the human experience, there is this indelible, undeniable thirst and passion and desire to experience the living God... To have a transcendent experience, if that's true and it's growing deeper and deeper in humanity, then how is it that that could be the only human desire that has no fulfillment in reality? You say, what do you mean? Remember what I said? We desire food. Why? Because food exists. You desire water because water exists. Okay, we desire things because they are real, they exist. We desire the sense of beyond and connect with God because it is a desire that can be fulfilled. Otherwise, it's the only desire we have, in a desire that has no fulfillment in reality. Now, the story of the Bible, for those of you who are new, maybe you came on Easter and there was a transformation that occurred in your life. The story of the Bible is to show you that God is not interested in being a distant God. Has no interest in that. He does not desire to be up there and you down here. He wants relationship. He wants intimacy. He wants you to experience him. Somebody comes along and says, Jeff, do you love your wife? And I say to them, yeah. And then they say, Do you ever see her? Not much. Do you ever spend time with her? Not really. Do you ever experience her love? Well, no, not really. Are you sure, Jeff, that you love her? Because we automatically assume that love, and the Bible tells us God is love, assumes relationship, closeness, intimacy. So all through the Old Testament, God keeps showing up. And every time he shows up to bridge the gap that exists between God and man, every time he shows up, you see fire and wind and wind and fire and fire and wind over and over and over again. Every single time we find God showing up in the Old Testament to bridge the gap, two things seem to be ever present. He appears to Job in a whirlwind. He appears to Abraham in a a burning torch that walks uh, between the pieces. He appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Fire and wind, wind and fire. And then we come to the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And what happens? God decides he's going to come to earth, incarnate, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And he walks in our world And he is hungry and thirsty and gets tired and suffers as we suffer in the human experience. All for one primary reason, to bridge the final gap that exists between us and him. To handle the issue of our sin so that God can come near, so that we can experience him. So that he may not just come down, so that he might come in. Now, Acts 2. Wow, the history of the book of the first Christians, the first Christ followers. God is going to fulfill his promise. There's been the death, burial, resurrection, the ascension. And Jesus said to the disciples, if I don't go away, then the spirit cannot come. He promises them in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying that I'm going to do something special very soon. The Spirit of God's going to come on the inside of you, and you're going, to, you're going to discover a truth that is going to transform you. It's going to be like a paradigm bomb. It's going to change you to such a degree that there are going to be people all around the world who want to be like you. They're going to be drawn to your God. Not everybody, but there's going to be a lot of people drawn, drawn to what you have, what you know. So you know what happens in Acts 2, right? Disciples are standing around waiting for the fulfillment of Jesus' words to come, They're waiting to be filled with the Spirit. Suddenly, there's a loud noise like a blowing or rushing mighty wind. Just imagine for a moment, jet engines firing up and displacing massive amounts of air. So it's, you know, when a jet engine starts up, the sound fills the entire house. Kind of like when my son was learning to play the drums at eight years old. It fills the whole house. Then they saw what looked like, now don't let this freak you out. It's very symbolic and I'll I'll explain it to you. They saw what looked like tongues of fire descend. And then the tongues of fire did two things. They they came down uh, together, then they separated, and then they went down individually on each of the 12 disciples, because Matthias now has replaced Judas. And Gave them this uncanny ability to do something they had not ever been able to do. So there are tongues of fire together, separate, and then they land on the, on the, over the heads of the disciple. Now, look, at, look, remember what we talked about? Every time God shows up, fire and wind, fire and wind. So this is symptomatic. God is showing up, and then it's tongues. The word is actually languages, and the Greek word alas is used, which means it's languages of a different kind. Not a different kind than human, it's human utterable, understandable languages. And so suddenly, as a result, these disciples are able to speak a language they had not previously learned. Now, why would God provide that miracle? Well, there's going to be a lot we're going to talk about, but one of the reasons is simply because this is the beginnings of the church, and you got all kinds of people there who who have come to celebrate Pentecost. So this is a great way to to kickstart the church, right? Because they're all going to hear the gospel in their own language, then go back to their lands, and the gospel is going to take over the known world. So it's pretty practical on God's part. But all the people who were there, who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, are drawn into this house, first, because of the noise, a rushing mighty wind, and second, because, wait a minute, I'm hearing... I'm hearing something in my own language. Now, look at the people who are represented here. In Acts chapter 2, verse 9, we're told Parthians are there, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus of Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, which is the word for language, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now, you would. Imagine, imagine people from France going on vacation in Nashville, Tennessee, and hearing everybody speak French. Now, first of all, that would just be frightening because I can't imagine country music in French. <laughs> but it would also be downright mystifying. Wow, how is this? These are Tennesseans. Now, as they drew near, they noticed that the men who were speaking these languages were uneducated Galileans. And that added to the miraculous nature. These were fishermen who worked on the sea. That was part of the miracle. Galilean fishermen generally are not multilingual. They don't have a degree from Harvard. Who are these guys? What's going on here? Now, again, it's important to notice, we're not talking about the gift of tongues here. That's that's 1 Corinthians 13, 14. That's a later time. This is simply a different language than the disciples had previously learned, and that's the miracle of Pentecost. They're speaking human languages. God does something miraculous here. But, but think about how the miracle happens. Imagine me being able to stand up right now, and in this audience, there are people from Portugal, France, Russia, China, Israel, Switzerland, Egypt, Nepal, and suddenly, I speak one language, but everybody hears in their language. That would be the miracle of hearing, but that's not what happens here. The miracle here is the Holy Spirit comes down on each disciple and enables them to speak a language of somebody who's present. A language they had not previously learned. For what purpose? Acts 2.11. We hear them speaking in our own language the wonderful works of God, which tells me that when you get filled with the power of the Spirit, you speak. And you speak the wonders of God. And you communicate the wonder of God. Now, so many questions emerge here, but seldom do we ask the question we should be asking. And a lot of it's because we've been kind of tainted by the history of thought. What is the question we should be asking? It's this. Why does God choose the day of Pentecost to release this miracle and to give the disciples what you and I will also have, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God? Why choose the Pentecost? Pentecost is not the first Pentecost, right? Do you know what Pentecost means? 50. Why? Because Pentecost is celebrated 50 days after Passover. The first Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after Passover. What happened? 50 days after the first Passover when the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt. What happened? Moses went onto the mountain and experienced the transcendent when God came down and gave him the Ten Commandments. And in the giving of the Ten Commandments, Moses has an experience that most of us are familiar with, but don't connect it to this whole event here. Because it was the first Pentecost when Moses comes to God and says, God, give me something more. He says, Show me your glory. Remember that? Show me your glory. And even if I were God, I'd say, dude, I just wrote the Ten Commandments on stone, came down a fire and wind. What do you want? I mean, but that's like that's that's how we are. It's how we operate. God, I see what you've done, but I want a transcendent experience. I gotta have more of you, man. I want more of you. Show me your glory. Now, we know, so that we don't have to put words in the mouth of God, we know why God came down from the mountain or to the mountain to deliver the Ten Commandments, and it wasn't just to give a show of fire and wind. He said to Moses, I have come to declare my name, to tell you who I really am. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know me in the way that I seek to be known as a relational God. And then, of course, Moses has this amazing experience, and you'll find it in Exodus 33. He says, God, show me your glory. Give me an experience of the transcendent. I want the good stuff, man. I want to feel good. I need something great that will keep me going during tough times because these people down here are stiff neck, man. Ministry would be great if it wasn't for people, God. How does God respond? Okay, I will let my goodness pass before you. Now, you can understand if Moses said, what? What? No, it's not the goodness I want. I want the glory and the power. Show me the power. And God responds by saying, okay, Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. Now, what is God communicating here? He's saying basically this, Moses, if you want to see my power and glory and have a transcendent experience, then I got to show you who I really am. You think you know me, but you don't. I'm about to show you. And if you comprehend who I really am and my nature, when you see it, it'll cause something internally to happen to you and you will have a transcendent experience that will change you forever. I got to let my goodness pass before you, my goodness. Now, God gives Moses a disclaimer, though, doesn't he? He says, well, I can show you, but I can't show you everything, because if I show you everything, it'll kill you. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to shelter you with my hand, otherwise you'd see all of my glory, and it would kill you. It would destroy you. Now, we're not sure what that means there. There destroy, kill? Is it means that, does it mean that it's just too much for Moses to comprehend and it would explode too much? Or does it mean that he would actually... Because we're not talking about seeing the face of God. There's something happening here. Now, stay with me. When God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, have you ever read what happens next? You are now. As he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness... Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Wow, what an anticlimax. If I were Moses, I said, I, I asked you, God, show me your glory, and you gave me a true statement that gives me the heebie jeebies. Moses said, I want to experience your glory. I want an experience of transcendent. God says, okay, the only way I can do that. Is to help you see who I really am. And the only way I can do that is for you to see my goodness. Now, if you're a thoughtful person at all, you're going to read this passage. God says, "'The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin.'" You're going to see that. And you say, on the other hand, God says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. I am the Lord. And if you read those two back to back, any thoughtful person is going to do what? Man, God is schizophrenic. He doesn't know who he is. First, he says, I just want to love people and I seek to forgive people who are wicked. And then he says, but I by no means are going to clear the guilty and leave any debt unpaid. And this is in the context of God saying to Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. And in showing him his goodness, he says, I will never overlook a sin. How's that good? Well, part of it is if you remember last week, we used the example if a man commits a crime and has his day in court, and then he goes to the judge and says, Judge, you know, I know I did this really bad thing, but I'm really sorry. And the judge goes, Oh, well, if you're sorry, boom, next case. If you have a judge, that takes criminal activity so lightly as to allow a person to go free without justice to the victims, we would not call him a good judge. On the other hand, God says, you know, I love people. I don't want anyone to perish. I want to show kindness even to the wicked of the world. Now, why does he say that? Again, because he's good. I want to punish evil. Why? Because he's good. I want to forgive wicked. Why? Because he's good. Now, most people will see that and say, well, it's just obvious God's going to have to choose. When hearing this for the first time, most people, well, he's got to make up his mind who he really is. He's either going to act on his justice, goodness, and punish evildoers, or he's going to act on his love, goodness, and forgive and show mercy. Now, if that's what you think, then the Spirit of God has never come on you. He's never filled you with his truth, and you don't yet get it. And that's a big part of why you're struggling.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fiennes. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
1: The captives are able to be set free by the power of the Spirit in them. You're able to forgive people you never thought you could forgive. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. You're able to take hold of private disciplines that you never thought you could. You are moved to a higher order of living. So you sense his presence in worship. When you come in here, you feel his presence. You can
0: listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts.